electricity, a big idea that's inspired countless new ones. From powering the light bulb to virtually powering our entire lives. 30 years ago, State Street launched the Spider S&P 500 ETF, SPY. A big idea that inspired the world to invest differently. And still does. What can you do with SPY? Before investing, consider the funds, investment objectives, risks, charges, and expenses. Visit SSGA.com for a prospectus containing this and other information. Read it carefully before investing. SPY is subject to risks similar to those of stocks. All ETFs are subject to risk, including possible loss of principal. Alps Distributors, Inc. Distributor. I'm Scott Wapner, and you're listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast, the most profitable hour of the trading day. We record this live weekdays at 12 Eastern. Listen in. All right, Carl, thanks very much. Welcome, everybody, to the Halftime Report. I'm Scott Wapner, front and center this hour. Tech troubles. The Nasdaq, as you just heard, flirting with its seventh consecutive loss. This is Apple Ready's for its big iPhone event. We debate what lies ahead for your money with the Investment Committee. Joining me this hour, we've got Kerry Firestone, Joe Terranova, with me here on set, Stephanie Link and Josh Brown. I'll take you to the wall, show you what the markets are doing at 12 noon in the east. And we've had another reversal. We've had a few already today. We're positive for the majors. The 10-year note yield, one to watch today, it was at 335 or 334. So, Steph, I feel like the, this whole thing is a, is a great debate. Soft landing hopes versus overly aggressive Fed that puts you into a recession. Yeah. Seems to me like kind of plain and simple. That's it. Yeah, it is kind of you gotta plain decide and simple. Which, you got to decide which one yeah. you're betting on to figure out where you believe the market's going, right? Yeah, no, you're right. I, and look, we're definitely slowing here in the States. We're definitely slow around the world. I thought the data over this weekend was really pretty negative. Gazprom, the news, they're shutting off gas supplies to Europe indefinitely. China cuts their, their triple R, their lending rate, by 200 basis points because they're so slow. And they're now seeing more closures because of COVID. Um, and the Fed got the green light on Friday from the non-farm payroll numbers because wages are still high at 5.2% year over year. Today and oh, by too, the way, right? Today too, right? ISM was ISM. more green light. Yes. Therein lies the problem. <laughs> and therein lies the problem. And home prices up 18% year over year last week. And so that means rents, which follow home prices by about a year, will remain high. And that's a third of CPI. And we've been talking about that. So inflation is hot. Fed continues to go. We're slowing. It's kind of a recipe for just staying choppy, right? And I, I understand that the earnings are vulnerable for sure. Uh, I believe that. Uh, but I still think that we're going to see growth this year. Uh, next year, obviously, it's slows down a bit, uh, but it's really a delicate balancing act right now. I think you have to have a little more cash and a lot more patience. Yeah, you got uh, Josh, the Fed chair this Thursday. As they said last hour, he's speaking there. He's going to be hawkish. There's no reason he's not going to be. Um, is it as simple as I laid it out at the very top? Uh, it's a simplistic way of looking at it, but it feels like that's it. You either are optimistic because you think there's going to be a soft landing or you're pessimistic because you think that while the economy is relatively decent now, they're going to overdo it and push you into a recession. Earnings are going to go way down and stocks are going to follow. Well, here's the thing. Historically, we know that unless you are like a very short term trader and you're being uh, graded on like quarterly performance, um, then historically, if you've wanted to get bullish, you've been better off buying after the market bottoms than buying before. Um, that's just what the data suggests, meaning the end of a bear market doesn't go out with a whimper. It, it, really, it truly tends to be an event. 
and a lot of the loss of a bear market occurs within that period in which it ends. So it's very tough because it's clearly it's clear that we're still in a bear market. And I think a lot of people don't have the context of what it feels like to actually live through a bear market, because for the last 12 years, we've had nothing but V-shaped recoveries. Even during a pandemic that killed a million Americans, the stock market's reaction was V. This is the first time in a long time that it's not working out that you know way. Why? You know why? You know why. I know you know why. Tell me uh, why. Because the Fed was your friend Fed. every time. Yeah. Fed's not your friend anymore. Look at you. The friend you, is your foe. I, listen, right? but serious. I couldn't agree more. Listen, so here's, here's what I want to do very quickly. Uh, my colleague Ben Carlson, who writes at A Wealth of Common Sense, uh, we, we get inundated with questions from clients. How do we know it's a bear market rally? Um, how do we know that's not the bottom, et cetera? So for context, the 2000 to 2002 bear market is, in memory, the most similar to this one. And we had five major bounces during the course of that bear market, each one leading to new lows, which is how you know it's a bear market rally. You had one that was 19 percent, one that was 21 percent. Uh, the next one was 8 percent, then 21 percent, then 21 percent. Three times you had a 21 percent bounce off the low during that two-year stretch, and every time was a heartbreaker. For context, the bounce we just saw from uh, June 16th into pretty much uh, the middle of August was 17.5% trough to peak. So completely within the range of what we've seen historically for a bear market rally. Um, but unfortunately, that, that latest one just ended in tears as well. So mm -hmm. I think we're still in that. I don't want us to be... I'm not rooting for negative news. I'm not rooting for any of the things that are driving this market lower. But I'm just trying to consistently explain to people we are not out of the woods you're yet. The and your one. behavior should well, be moderated. Well, you get QT. You're you're get QT this, this month, yeah. too, right, to $95 billion. We, we, so, Steph, On you top and of I, everything else. Right, you and I were both talking about that in July. Yes. Right? Yes. So, like, now we're in it. And it's just starting. Yep. So, Carrie, I mean, Josh is not the only one who's, who's making this case and pointing it out and um, giving you all the cogent reasons why we're not out of the woods. Garth Wade over at Credit Suisse today, he moves equities to underweight. Bear markets, he says, typically last 14 months with an average fall of 35%. It sort of goes to the price and time argument, neither of which have been met by those metrics. Yeah, uh, well, I think that you can acknowledge that we have bad news uh, on a lot of fronts and acknowledge that the market can be choppy. Perhaps the market has not made a bottom, but also accept the fact that there can be opportunities in a market like that. There are ways to outperform in a market like that. And that since what we all do is manage assets for individuals or institutions that allocate a certain amount of their assets to the stock market, saying, well, we'll just sit in cash is, is not a solution. Okay. I mean, there are, there are, all right, so no, show me we the way, have then. Uh, a show way to- Show me the way. If there are ways, so, our, our, I know our viewers <laughs> are sitting at home, says, okay, Carrie, you show me the way. <laughs> I, I need ideas. Then what's the way? Uh, yeah. So one can be defensive, but also take into account opportunities that are out there. So on the defensive front, um, if you have owned 
uh, consumer staples and energy. Those have been great stocks. That doesn't mean they're going to continue to be great stocks. You can also now own some stocks that are growth stocks, whether it's owning, you know, Autodesk or owning PayPal or owning um, Waste Connection. These are companies that will continue to earn, are not trading at high multiples um, because the market has taken them down already and combine them in a portfolio with other sectors that have more defensive characteristics. And then you can get 3%, you can get 3.4% on some treasuries right now as part of that mix. But saying this is a bear market, we shouldn't own stocks, is not really what Josh means. He's just saying that there is downside potential. But if you miss the top, na- the top big names in terms of uh, top percentage change in the market so that you wait for a bottom, but then you never hit the days that it goes up 4% or 5% in a day, you can miss a lot of the upside of, of the equity markets. So nobody really wants to sit there and say, oh, this is it, bingo, this is the bottom. You can't do that, much as people can't pick the top. So, so I think having a, uh, a, a portfolio that straddles sectors and types of stocks right. is appropriate in this market. Right. So, Joe, um, is tech the way? Is growth the way to play this market? I'm wondering, whatever happened to the cues, the cues buy that you had been circling like a shark, waiting for the moment to pounce, and it never happened? Why not? Because I told you on overtime, I like money more than I like being right and being able to come on CNBC and say, I told you so. No. What I want to do is in my strategy, react to what I'm seeing in the market. Um, And I think that is what ultimately makes someone a good investor and makes someone a good trader. I think right now you have the least amount of clarity, at least myself personally. I have no confidence in telling you where the next five or 10 percent in this market is up or down. I come on the network all the time, and but I'll say, well, it? I think we could go 3% well, higher or 3% lower. For, forgive of me course for I had you. it. You, yes. ha- you had it sure. 10 days ago or yes. whatever, a week ago, and now you don't have it anymore? Where'd uh, it go? Like, what happened? Technicals got washed away. It was predicated on the move in the technicals, and that was washed away. And again, last week, I, I, I said when I came on overtime with you uh, that we had lost the technicals, and now we're hostage to the fundamentals soft landing, hard landing. You only know the answer to that through the course of time. So back to your original question, what do you own? I think, look, all the viewers know what I own. All the viewers know uh, in terms of money management, what Josh, Steph, and Carrie are advocating for. Scott, everyone comes on and says, you want to own quality. Okay, you know what's really important? Here's what you don't want to own. You don't want to own companies who are still challenged by the cost of capital being normalized in trading near 52-week lows. Guess what? DocuSign made a 52-week low today. Your favorite names like Intel and Paramount, they made 52-week lows today. Look at the ARK Fund, which is near its 52-week low. Look at Zoom, which is near its 52-week low. Look at the cannabis sector, which everyone a couple of years ago wanted to own. These are the things that you can't own right now. And I think that's what's important where you avoid the potential for outsized risk losses, that's how you manage through this process of time. Well, what makes it especially challenging, Josh, is that you, you don't know what the right price is, right? Time is one metric by which you 
try and make investment decisions by, but price is a significant one. And we don't truly know the price because we don't know exactly what the earnings are going to be. We don't know what multiple those earnings deserve. Mike Wilson today says this is fire and ice part two and that it's more about the ice. And what is he talking about? He's talking about earnings. He says they revised their 2022 base case EPS estimate to 220. That's from 225. So he's still negative. It's not like he's, you know, throwing uh, throwing the whole thing out. He does not embed an economic recession in his scenario of a contraction he thinks will be about 3% in year-over-year earnings growth. That's not horrible. It's just realistic. What we've tried to make the case on what is realistic and what isn't. Earnings are likely to come in. What price do you pay for stocks in that scenario is the great unknown. Well, we know uh, the retailers are, are now struggling with it, uh, ballooning inventories, and that was very easily foreseeable. Uh, we talked we talked at the end of 2021 about double ordering and people just saying we'll just take as much as we can get because we don't actually think we're going to be able to get it. That story has actually played out combined with the fact that people who have spent a lot of money on durable goods, which is a huge part of S&P earnings uh, and market cap, people who have spent a lot of money on that stuff don't repeat those purchases the next year. Um, the Fed, I've mentioned on the show. Uh, if, if they could wave a wand and they could slow demand only in certain areas, they would do that. But the Fed is not doing surgery. Uh, the Fed really only has one very blunt instrument, and that is to hit consumer demand uh, any way that it can and then try not to overdo that. But in that process of hitting consumer demand, you're going to have a situation where earnings have to come down and it's deliberate. Like, nobody should be like, oh, no, I think earnings will be okay. We know they won't. So now the only argument is the degree to which they're going to have to come down. Mm -hmm. And that's, a, Scott, that's a legit argument. I don't really have a strong opinion on that. I just know the direction. And if I know the direction, and I know one other very big thing, mm -hmm. which is that bear markets have never bottomed at 17 times earnings, I know this. So if I know those two things, then that can keep me reticent about, oh, maybe that's the bottom, maybe today's the bottom, maybe I buy it here. I understand these things. I don't have to be a genius, and I don't have to predict the forward earnings of the S&P 500. Directionally, we know where things are headed. Right, and Steph, directionally, Mike Wilson goes on to suggest that we think the lows for this bear market will likely arrive in the fourth quarter. 3,400 is the minimum downside, he thinks. 3,000 is the low if you get a recession in the fourth quarter, or if the market starts to really sniff out. Market's going to sniff anything out long before the actual knock on the door. I think they right? already are starting to sniff it out, right? That's why we've had choppiness all year long. We've been in a trading range because we have all these unknowns. We don't know how it's going to work yeah, out. I know, but, then, but you said top of the show, but you, you had that soft landing come back into focus on Friday with the jobs report. Well, I don't know if it's a soft landing. Who's saying I, I'm, that? Not giving, I'm not giving the Fed that, that much credit. That. I'm not giving the Fed that much credit. They have a very bad history of a soft landing. What I'm saying is that we are slowing, but we're not in a recession. And at the same time, the Fed is a and they said 4% Fed funds, so many of them said it at Jackson Hole. And so that's what the market is trying to deal with. How much do we slow? How fast? How deep is the recession? 2023, I've told you, I think we are going to be in a recession. I do not think we are in one right now, specifically because of the job market. But there are a lot of data points out there that have actually come in a little bit better than expected. So you asked where to invest. You have to stay diversified. I uh, take the strategy of dollar cost averaging. And I 
make my price targets based on where I think the fundamentals are and where they're headed. Where I think I have the most confidence right now, energy, because the free cash flow is so great. Even if oil were to fall to 50 or $60, these companies are still making a ton of money. How about LNG and that CapEx budget, uh, the build-out, rather? That, that's a, a theme as well that we haven't really talked a lot about, but that would be a floor or a next terra kind of a thing. Uh, very good visibility there. On the consumer, I mentioned jobs. Numbers have already come down so much for discretionary. So the valuations are actually kind of compelling to me because the numbers are down, and I think the consumer is going to hold up relatively well. We talk about agriculture. I mean, they're seeing a ton of tailwinds. And financials, higher rates will help financials. So I'm not saying that earnings aren't going to come down for all of these sectors. It's, if we go into a deep recession, mm-hmm. they will. Mm-hmm. But I think on a relative basis, and that's the way a portfolio manager runs money, is on a relative basis to the benchmark, I think they will hold up better. Joe, Mark Newton at Fundstrat says September is likely to show strength into mid-month, right? I mean, and that time is almost near. Um, And he said he agrees with you. While the technical trends remain lower, there do remain important points to argue for a reversal higher at a time when very few expect it. And maybe that's one of the key points. Very few expect it. And that could become evident this week with technology leading the rebound led by the Qs. The Qs could rally. So yet you don't see it. Well, all right. No, I didn't. I didn't say that I didn't see it. So l- l- let me take that argument for a, or a second and see how that potentially unfolds. First of all, as I as I did, I made Apple my biggest position. Okay, Apple is now by far the biggest personal position that I have. Um, newsflash: I'm not getting out of Apple. Okay, I'm not stopping myself out. I want Apple to be my biggest position because tell me what other company is going to be able to offer the degree of resiliency, the balance sheet strength that Apple can in this environment. But looking forward now, I I could easily see as we've begun to rebuild the pessimism, both in terms of positioning and sentiment. And if you look at, you know, the the, the statistics for S&P futures, you'll see holders of S&P futures are as short as they've been since back in June. Now you're coming into the CPI report, right? And, and unfortunately, that becomes this binary event where if you get a better print and now you've built up this pessimism, you've built up this uh, negative sentiment and positioning, you get a better print than CPI. The market's going to rally from that. I think that's all obvious to us. Is that sustainable over time? Not so sure. You need the confirmation of earnings. I still think this market is 60 to 75 days away from getting the all clear where you could say, okay, We've been through enough of the normalization process in terms of monetary policy. We're past the midterm elections. Now we could regain that vision of being a longer term investor and we could begin to acquire equities within our portfolio and begin to carry in certain instances them in an overweight. But we need probably another two months before we get there. That makes sense to you, Carrie? Yeah, it does make sense to me. And yeah, as, as Joe said, we'll get some more clarity, but we keep getting clarity about different aspects of this economy and about the market. And um, as you know, as I as I was saying, although I didn't say it quite clearly enough, if you miss the best five days per year in the market, your return over the long term would be cut by half. So this is something that we have to keep in mind that things can change on a dime. They changed on June 16th. Then they seem to change as Powell spoke the last time. So it, things can change again. Now, I'm not trying to be 
Pollyanna. I'm not saying it's going to, but to be wildly pessimistic or wildly optimistic in this environment isn't good. How can they change and on so a dime? I want to find- know how can things change? How can things <clears throat> change? Putin, on, on, Putin on, on surrenders on and, and reopens the, the, yeah, the gas. Like, what's correct. the scenario where we change yeah. on a dime? Okay. I mean, I, I suppose that's one scenario, but I mean, I'm thinking more. China of, and zero COVID lockdown policy would probably be a thousand point Dow rally. And how, more stimulus. How, and, how, and more how, stimulus. Well, the, right. So in general. Chi- China announced 19 new stimulus me- uh, yeah, right. measures two weeks ago. Um, hasn't mattered, hasn't helped. So it's, it's hard to think of a single catalyst. Carrie, um, I agree with you. I, I've said on the show before, one of the most toxic things you can do to yourself is to decide that you play for a team and slap a label on yourself, bull or bear. I don't think that that's constructive yeah. for anyone because what it ends up doing Correct. is it forces you to take every day's headline and put it through that filter of, I'm, I'm a bull, I'm a bear, I'm a Republican, I'm a Democrat. That's a huge waste of time and energy for investors. Correct. But I, I want to address that stat about uh, missing the best days. The thing about that is the best days tend to be clustered with the worst days. There have been 350 trading days where the stock market has gone either up or down by 3% in that single day going back to 1928. So a century's worth of history. I think you'd agree with me. It's a, a pretty relevant Um, data set. More than 90% of those took place while the market was in a correction of 10% or more, and 83% of those took place during a 20% or worse bear market. So those big up and down days, yeah, we don't want to miss them if we don't have to, but if we have less money at risk in a defined downtrend or a bear market, A, we sleep better at night, and I do wealth management for a living. You can take my word for it. Um, B, gives us dry powder and or optionality so that when everybody gets too pessimistic, actually can play a little little bit of offense. If we're uh, all in for the entirety of the downside, can't do any of those things. Can't sleep, can't play offense. So that is why when you hear me talk about... I didn't say anything about about being all in. Agree. So that is why when you hear me talk about um, pessimism, it's not oh, I I think the worst case scenario is going to occur. I have to be realistic in this environment because I have to be in a place where I can do what I need to do to play offense at some point. We uh, we mentioned Apple shares briefly. Uh, They're coming off their third straight negative week ahead of its big event tomorrow. We'll find out where the street stands on that stock, how the committee is playing it going into the event, and how they will on the backside of it. We're back in two minutes. Old Dominion Freight Line was built on keeping promises. With an industry-leading on-time delivery record and low claims rate, we keep promises better than any other LTL freight carrier because we treat every shipment like it's our most important one. Visit odfl.com to learn more. B2B selling is tougher than ever, and we feel your pain. If you're struggling to close deals, consider giving LinkedIn Sales Navigator a shot. This sales intelligence platform helps professionals like you engage high-value customers, drive higher revenue, and increase sales performance. Sales Navigator also guides you in targeting the right buyers, highlights key signals such as job changes or which accounts you should prioritize, and uncovers hidden hot prospects so you can find those buyers that are most likely to convert. Fueled by LinkedIn's 1 billion member platform, Sales Navigator gives you the most up-to-date first-party data, enabling you to unlock conversations with the people that matter. 
Right now, you can try LinkedIn Sales Navigator and get a 60-day free trial at linkedin.com slash halftime report. That is linkedin.com slash halftime report for a 60-day free trial. Let LinkedIn Sales Navigator help you sell like a superstar today. Just go to linkedin.com slash halftime report and get started. Welcome back. We're counting down to Apple's big iPhone event tomorrow. There it is. One day, 35 minutes and 40 seconds. Four new iPhone models expected, a new Apple Watch, iOS 16, could have some hardware subscription uh, along with that uh, for the iPhone as well. So we heard Joe's point of view, and, and Steph, I want to debate this. Mm. Um, Joe basically made the case that this is the stock to own over everything else. Make it your biggest position is what he did. He gave you the reasons why. You get defense with the offense. You got free cash flow. You got the balance sheet. You got the cash hoard. You got everything. Is he right? You got a good company, but it's not at a compelling valuation at 20 times forward estimates. And I don't think these are game-changing products that are going to be announced this week. I'm actually watching lead times. Lead times at the company for all products has actually been improving, so that means supply chains are getting better. The big question that I have is, does demand actually keep, stay strong? I think it will be strong, but it just, does it stay as strong? They were a beneficiary from stay at home, for sure. So mm -hmm. let's see that reverse. So I, I'm very un underweight this name, uh, 700 basis points in my bench. I'm like 100 basis points overall. But the way I'm playing Apple in general is Broadcom, right? 30% exposure there. Um, and Berkshire. It's his largest mm. position. So, the, so I'm not saying I hate Apple. I just don't think it's that compelling from a stock point of view. Even with the reasons you just suggested, Berkshire, yeah, I mean, I mean, I, I like. Well, Berkshire is very diversified, but at least I get some Apple exposure there, right? Well, you get more than some. Yeah, you do. I <laughs> know. I know. If you look at the charts, they trade exactly the same. Um, but Broadcom too. But I don't have to be all in on Apple because Broadcom also has Enterprise, which has actually been very strong. We talked about it on Friday and hey, how strong their quarter was. Joe, um, justify the valuation. Is it? Do you need to have more to the story to justify 26 times than? You know, for the reasons you said, the buyback and blah, 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 right? That only gets you so far. That doesn't justify valuations that get too high at times. Well, the valuation premium, you're happy to pay that because you of everything that you just identified fundamentally about the company. So I'm going to look at that valuation. Yeah, it's a little bit rich, but I'm willing to accept that premium because of what it's giving me back in terms of fundamentals. I think what Stephanie uh, stated, the one point that really for me is a, a positive catalyst is I do think, Stephanie, the demand is going to be there. Yeah. I think consumers will show, I think consumers will show up for these products. Um, and now it just comes down to can Apple deliver on the inventory? Will the inventory be there? But I think without question, given the resiliency we've seen recently from consumers and affluent consumers, right? They're buying their Lululemon pants. Uh, they're buying their, you know, Lululemon gear, and they're going to go out and continue to buy products like what Apple's going to deliver. So that demand to me is going to be there. I think the inventory, I think they will be fine on inventory, which is why I mentioned the lead times, because supply chains are easing. They're going to have the products. That's why I said the question is, is the demand going to be there? The demand could be there, but what am I paying? I'm 25, 26 times. Broadcom's at 13 times. Berkshire has $100 billion in cash to spend, right? So I just find that there's other ways to play the same kind of theme, if you will. And, and, and so that's the way I'm kind of positioned. Okay. Um, you have your 
compadre here in Berkshire for sure. Yeah. But what about this this idea of mm. the value? I mean, it's essentially is Apple too expensive? That's the conversation. Yeah. You know what's what's interesting is what's in, that is the conversation. But what's interesting is like does it deserve to be? Because Apple has a stability of cash flow and a continuity of uh, I, I would I guess I would refer to it as. Uh, shareholder support, so to speak, that no other company has. So, like, arguably, that would earn it a premium valuation. The problem with that is if you buy it today at that premium valuation, then you're essentially not in, in position to earn as much, right? The, the equity risk premium would be lower because you're taking less risk. So the way I think about Berkshire and Apple is the same way. I don't need to own the cheapest stock in every sector. Um, and in a market like this, I actually think that stability will remain prized by investors. So I think it can keep that premium. Um, Apple's got a lot of levers to pull. Uh, it's the greatest business. Uh, the App Store is the greatest business in the history of planet Earth. Uh, quite frankly, the highest margins, the fastest growth, the most dominance. That's not changing in the next six months, regardless of what happens in the U.S. economy. So I'm staying with it. I think it'll be okay. Not looking for it to take a market leadership position per se if there's a bull market. But I don't think there's a bull market. So I'm, I'm good with where I am. Right, 155 is uh, where it's sitting. Kerry, wrap it up in 30 seconds. Um, so I would say elements of what other people have said all makes sense. It's not a cheap stock. We cut it back about a month ago, uh, but it's still uh, a large position, as it is for most people, because if it's 7% of the S&P, you can be underweighted and still own plenty of Apple. It's a bellwether for the market. And part of the reason the market ran up is because people anticipated a good quarter and they had one. So I would watch Apple right here at its 1,500-day moving averages. Yeah, well, that's why some say it is right now uh, critically important to the market um, because of all of the reasons that all of you said. We'll see what it does on the other side of the event, too, which is always interesting to watch the run up in some cases and then what happens on the backside of that. So up next, we do have some trades on some of the biggest analyst calls of the day. <clears throat> Excuse me. Plus tonight at six Eastern. Don't miss a CNBC special report. Energy emergency. It's hosted by our own Brian Sullivan. Halftime is back right after this. What does it mean to be rich? Is it having more stories to share or time to give? Is it being able to keep your loved ones close or travel somewhere far away? At Edward Jones, we believe the key to being rich is knowing what counts. Your dedicated financial advisor will take a comprehensive approach to your financial strategy to help support what truly matters to you. edwardjones.com slash findyourrich. Edward Jones, member SIPC. Let's do our calls of the day now. First up is FedEx got downgraded today to neutral from buy at City. They named J.B. Hunt and UPS their top picks, which, Joe, both are in the Joe T. They, they are, and it's really the, the, the logistic uh, thesis, the movement of goods, the resiliency of the consumer within the economy. Um, that's, this is going to sound like a lukewarm endorsement, but that's kind of the best I'm going to give you. We're going to need more. Uh, these are two companies that, again, I like the balance sheet. I like the fundamental nature of these companies, but you need a better overall macro environment. You're getting a little bit of that with J.B. Hunt with better gasoline prices, but we're going to need more. We're going to need an improvement. Um, expectations for this, I think you have to set them very reasonably at a modest level. How about that, Steph, for rails, 
all transports. Yeah. Do you need a better macro for these stocks to work better? Probably. You probably do. Um, but I own Union Pacific because it's the number one company in the industry. They benefit from crude by rail, which is a very big theme and a very big positive for them. And they've been fixing some of the problems, the service problems that they've had over the last couple of quarters. Uh, so that should help the operating ratios and the margins and that sort of thing. Um, and they have very easy comparisons in the next several quarters. The stock is not a commanding multiple. So that's I'm very specialized within transports. And I think that there's enough here fundamentally that gives, gives me confidence that earnings will hold up relative to, relatively better than some of these mm, other. Technically, things. the rails actually look better than any other subset of the transports. Mm. And uh, one out of four freight yep. companies are now below their 200-day moving average. Um, EXPD, FedEx, J.B. Hunt, C.H. Uh, Robinson. These stocks do not look good. Carrie, mm. uh, you own a company named Wabtech. Yeah. Uh, and we bought it uh, over a year ago. It was trading at a, a sharp discount to the market. It's gotten some big orders from um, many of the larger railroad companies they make. Uh, cars, and they make equipment for cars, they make rail tracks, and uh, it continues to be a good performer, we believe, because it's got a really nice runway and bookings are fantastic over the next couple of years. So the other call that I wanted to hit, Josh, is a stock that we just haven't talked a ton about is Amazon. We end yeah. up talking about Apple a lot for obvious reasons, but J.P. Morgan reiterates Amazon today, their top pick. Uh, 185 is the price target. You own it. It's pacing for its sixth negative day in the last seven. Yeah. So I'll, I'll take 185. Uh, <laughs> you know, this is interesting. <laughs> this is this is this is one of those uh, this is one of those situations where there were a lot of reasons for it to have had the big bounce, um, and they just haven't worked out. The latest, of course, being the split. Uh, as ridiculous as it sounds, these splits have ended up being big catalysts for some very large stocks. Tesla is a, is a recent example, Apple before that. Amazon did the split. There was some, some excitement when they announced it. The problem is by the time it took place, all of these stocks were locked into this massive downtrend. So they really just didn't see that bounce that you would expect. So then you say to yourself, like, well, what's the next real catalyst for Amazon? And I was honestly, writing that down, right, literally as you, as you, as you were saying it. <laughs> what's the bullish catalyst? I, yeah, I feel like you and I are almost yeah, like seriously. We, we share one brain well, sometimes. For real, though, what is it? There isn't. So the, so that, the answer is that there isn't one. Uh, and does it bother you that 97% of the sell side have buys on this thing? Uh, I feel like that's been the case, though, since like 2016, right? Yeah, but I mean, it's never been a hated stock. You don't have an incremental upgrade coming. That's my point. Yeah. You know what? You know what might be? You know what might be a catalyst? The only thing I can the only thing I can really think of is some sort of spinoff. Mm. Um, but I don't think that the new CEO has the has the ability to just decide that they want to do that without input from Bezos. And Bezos is having way too much fun these days. All you have to do is follow TMZ to understand why <laughs> you're probably not going to get that kind of a transaction that would really introduce some excitement into the stock. But like AWS is a standalone stock. This thing could go up 20% on that news. Uh, I just don't think it's going to happen right Scott, now. Yeah, Scott, Joe. what about buybacks like Alpha? What about, what about, ask Josh, you know, what about buybacks like Alphabet did a couple of years ago to kind of mimic what Microsoft and Apple were doing? be great. Uh, historically, they've been pretty uh, hesitant. They've done some. 
uh, in recent years. It's such a tiny amount. It doesn't really seem to move the needle. And it's hard to picture them going from zero to 60 and doing a big enough buyback that it would really be meaningful. The way a company like this probably would approach a buyback is the way other companies would approach a dividend. They never start out with a 4% yield. Uh, it takes them years and years of five cent increases to finally get up to an appreciative dividend. I kind of feel like Amazon would be that way about any kind of large shareholder return because again, the overarching ethos of this company is that it's uh, day zero, meaning they always want to act as though it's their first day in business. It's hard for a company that starts out their first day in business to say there's nothing better for us to invest in other than buying back our own stock. So it may get there at some point. I don't really foresee this as being a buyback or a dividend aristocrat anytime soon. Okay, let's get the headlines now with Seema Modi. Hi, Seema. Scott, good afternoon. Here's the news update at this hour. In Memphis, the police chief and local district attorney offering condolences to the family of Eliza Fletcher. Her body was found last night and identified this morning. The 34-year-old mother and teacher was abducted while jogging on Friday morning. Suspect Cleotha Abston is set to be arraigned in murder charges tomorrow. He has already been charged with kidnapping. In Uvalde, Texas, students are beginning the school year, about 15 weeks after the deadly shooting at Robb Elementary, where 19 students and two teachers died. Some parents and politicians are still seeking more information on the school security and the police response to that shooting. And the White House says COVID shots will remain free in the U.S. The Biden administration's COVID response coordinator says updated booster shots will become widely available in the coming week. He also says the country is moving closer to an annual COVID vaccine similar to flu shots. Halftime Report will be right back. We're back on the half Evercore ISI. Today is highlighting some of its favorite stocks. Right now, their criteria includes high shareholder total return, above average P.E. compression and a free cash flow yield in the top 20th percentile. Talk about some of these stocks on their list. Stephanie Link, Meta. Yeah. Is on their list. It's on their list. Strong free cash flow and 8.2% free cash flow yield. So that's the definition there. I like it because it still has size and scale, right? Two to three billion users um, and in and, and, and daily and, and monthly. I mean, and that's what advertisers, digital advertisers want. They want the size and the scale so that they get the ROI. They have to fix reels. We've talked about this. It's going to take some time. Um, but I think at 13, 14 times forward estimates, eight times EBITDA, a lot of bad news is priced in and not a lot has to go right, I think, for the stock to react positively. Joe, Bank of America, we see it on the TV. It's on their list. It is. I, I don't know that my ownership of Bank of America is, is specifically uh, because of the free cash flow yield. Um, I think free cash flow yield, I've been talking about this as ever, most of us on the committee have since the beginning of the year. It's so incredibly important in this environment because it gives a company flexibility. They could do M&A. They could pay down dividends. So uh, Valero is a name that I know is on this list. Valero is a name that I own. Uh, some other energy names, Chevron, ExxonMobil, those are both approaching 6 and 8%. And then AbbVie and Healthcare, which has an 8% free cash flow yield, I own that as well. Free cash flow is very important, but specific to Bank of America, that's not why I own it. Okay. Well, you front ran me on the other names, but that's okay. I was going to get there anyway. Thanks, Joe. Charter, Kerry. Don't name everything else on the list, oh. <laughs> please. Oh, God, I won't. I Charter. won't. I mean, it's bad enough to name Charter. So Charter is a name that we own. It has tremendous cash flow, uh, cash flow yield. It also is at a two-year low, if you look at the chart. I mean, you probably are. Um, and we think that it's 
uh, it's overdone. I mean, this is all about streaming wars and people cutting the cord. But it's U.S.-centric. That's positive. You don't have to deal with uh, euro or other uh, denominations where you're getting cut because of currency. And it's still growing in terms of uh, Wi-Fi, 5G usage. And we think that at this price, uh, Charter with its cash flow yield is, is a very strong buy right here. Although when the market doesn't like something, as we've talked about, you know, it's, it's tough. It's in its own bear market. And we need to see some catalyst, perhaps the next quarter, where we stabilize and we can start to move higher from, from that base. Josh, you like any of these names, whether it's Bank of America, Valero, MGM, BNY Mellon, Marathon, Capital One, they're all on this list. Lennar. Yeah, I agree. They're, they're, for the most part, high-quality companies with great free, ca free cash flow. I'm just not 100% sure that that factor in particular is going to be the one that matters over the next three months. Steph's going to get upset with me, um, <laughs> but the one I like the least is Meta. Uh, f first of all, fun, fun fact, over the last five years, Meta and IBM, same performance. Well, I own both. That's great. Both, both <laughs> negative seven percent. No, but isn't that incredible? Both negative seven percent. IBM and and Meta for five years. So we're told to hold quality companies that are dominant franchises for the long term. Doesn't always work. Um, Meta technically is on the precipice of either the mother of all bounces or a really nasty breakdown, and I have no idea which. Uh, technically speaking, though, if this thing gets into the low one fifties, you really can't be in it. Well, I'll give you the last word. Well, to, I mean, look, I think I'm, I'm in it for the long term, right? And by the way, over those last five years or whatever, whatever you said, I mean, I did take profits along the way. It was right? up I huge mean, and down huge. Yeah, yep. I mean, yep. so I, I get it. But I, I think these the stats that I stated, the size and the scale are really important for digital advertisers. They want the eyeballs, right? And so I don't know when they're going to pay for the eyeballs. I don't know when they're going to get reels fixed. But I do know that at least they're working on some things. And they generate a ton of cash in the, in the meantime so they can invest in their businesses. And I just go back to the valuation. This is a profitable company, when right? You, when and, you, and it doesn't deserve to be down as much as some of the unprofitable technology companies. Not in my opinion. I think that if this had a normal corporate structure where the boy king didn't have um, guaranteed voting control, uh, that there would be more pressure on him. Now, we're starting to see some pressure on them to focus on free cash flow and profitability again. Sure. Because in the end, he's got thousands of employees and they're all being incentivized by stock, and that stock is cut in half. So it can't go on like this forever, but if this were a normal situation, Elliot would already be involved, or Dan only, Loeb, or somebody. Only, this is the only Fang stock that I own, only the, one, and it's the only one that has a most attractive valuation, right? And you could talk about Amazon all day long, but that valuation's not cheap. We talked about Apple already. Alphabet, everybody owns it, everybody loves it. Same thing like Amazon. So, and I just, I, I feel like there's a bargain here. Now, I might be waiting a really long time for it, right. but I, I, I'm, that's the way I invest. Okay, we got, we got, we got to bounce. Uh, Mike Santoli's with us next for his midday word. Senior Markets Commentator Mike Santoli joining us now from the New York Stock Exchange for his midday word. What are your thoughts so far? 
Well, I mean, obviously, pretty twitchy action in stocks. And it, to me, it's what happens when you have this rampaging U.S. dollar and Treasury yields running up against an oversold stock market. Uh, that, to me, is why uh, perhaps stocks are not down more, as you might expect, after three days of rough news and what's happening in the dollar and yields. But it seems pretty delicate. You know, it's worth pointing out that uh, over the course of this year, uh, the S&P hasn't really spent much time at all below 3,900, which is where we're sitting right now. It seems like below there. It's it's the part of the hill with slippery, uh, slippery footing. So I think that's where uh, the battle sits right now. But uh, if it matters that positioning and sentiment are, are pretty deeply negative, um, th that is the case right now. Maybe that's, uh, that's why it's holding up a little better. Let me get your thoughts on the NASDAQ. I'm looking at a tweet from Bespoke. Already had three 1% plus intraday swings in the first three hours of trading. 1.8% decline off the open, 1.7% rally, now another 1% decline is what they, what they cited. Uh, it, it, what do you, I'm just curious what you make of it. Yeah. That really seems to be the epicenter right now of, of where at least investor thought slash concern is. Right. And I think it's just because, as always, it's the extreme version of what's going on in the rest of the market. So, yes, even more oversold. Yes, even more swung around by the biggest components than the S&P 500 is. Uh, and, you know, a little heightened sensitivity to things like the dollar and, uh, and yields when we are in this kind of a macro market. So to me, that's the explanation uh, as opposed to anything going on with regard to, you know, tech earnings or, or, or something else with Apple tomorrow. It seems to me much more about the, the indexes getting traded here against other asset classes. Right, good stuff. Uh, great to talk to you. And I will do it again in overtime. We'll see you then. Yep. That's Mike Santoli coming up. We have a buy call on one retail stock saying its problems won't last forever. Stephanie League owns it, which means we'll debate it next. Well, welcome back to Bullish Calls today on that stock right there. That is Target with Barron's writing a feature article over the weekend saying to buy shares because a lot of the bad news is already priced in. UBS has also included it as a top pick for 2023. You own it, and you have been incrementally adding it, is I that have. right? Adding to it? Yeah, because the stock is down 30% year-to-date. It trades at 14.4 times. Walmart trades at 23 times. I mean, so there's a real big change and difference between the two. And I think everybody knows about the $2 billion of inventory that they have to write down, and they are going to write down, which, by the way, is going to be great for the consumer. Um, and so I just think your comparisons start to get easier into the end of the year, into next year. Is this really probably a 2023 story? And I'm willing to be patient, especially given the valuation. Would you put new money into this name if you didn't own it at all today at these levels with these kind of concerns around the economy, uh, macro? Yes, I would, because they still have traffic and they still have ticket growth. They're still gaining market share, believe it or not, right? So people are going into the stores. They're just, they just had the wrong stuff that the consumer wanted. And as long as jobs stay strong, and they have been so far, mm -hmm. even if they go to 4% unemployment rate, you know what? The, the people are still going to go to Target because there is a value proposition there. Okay. We'll do final trades next. All right. Overtime, 4 o'clock Eastern. Got Adam Parker on set with me today. Greg Branch is in the house. Eric uh, Jackson, uh, the latest on this tech trade, which we were talking about on halftime today, too. Cameron Dawson's with me. I'll see all of you in a few hours' time, I hope. Let's do final trade. Stephanie Link, you are first. Next Terra, it's a renewables beneficiary. It will increase their growth rate and market share, and it trades at a five-year average multiple. So I think it's very attractive here. Okay. Kerry Firestone, what do you got? 
Um, Booz Allen Hamilton, BAH. Uh, it's defensive, no pun intended, is one of the largest defense consulting contractors. And that uh, stream of uh, earnings is relatively predictable over the next couple of years. Okay, thank you for that. The man with the ETF, Joe T. I'm glad Carrie mentioned uh, defense. We talked a little bit about industrials before. Um, certainly within industrials, you could own a name like Northrop Grumman, uh, which has clearly worked throughout okay. the entirety of 2022. All right, Josh Brown. Um, on really bad days like last Thursday and Friday, I look for what's not going down. Mm -hmm. Uber is on that list. The stock's got really great relative strength here. Thank you. CNOT, the exchange is now. You've been listening to CNBC's Halftime Report, the podcast. You can always catch us live weekdays at 12 Eastern, only on CNBC. The spirit of performance defines Acura, and now it's electric. Introducing the all-electric ZDX, Acura's most powerful SUV yet. While what powers their cars may change, the energy that makes Acura never will. Crafted using the same formula that brought them electrified supercars and multiple IMSA championships, the ZDX has track-tested performance that packs an energy all its own. With a premium Bang & Olufsen sound system and up to 313-mile range on a single charge and a Type S variant with an estimated 500 horsepower, the ZDX is everything they said electric could never be. It was built with the driver in mind, just like Acura has been doing since the beginning. We could talk all day, but the only way to experience this electric performance is to drive it yourself. Unlock the energy and order yours at Acura.com.